the power and the comfort of Paul's letter to the Romans is surely found in how comprehensive Paul is in Romans as he teaches the church about sin, about salvation, and about service. You'll remember that three-part outline uh, to the book of Romans. Uh, many scholars have called Paul's uh, letter to the Romans his, uh, his magnum opus, uh, his greatest work, uh, the pinnacle of, uh, of Paul's writing to the church. But coupled with the strength of his teaching is his pastoral heart. I hope you've been able to hear that uh, to this point. I hope you'll hear it again this morning. The pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. He, he doesn't teach for the sake of doctrine. Doctrine is important. It, it, it's essential. But we must be careful not to think of doctrine for doctrine's sake. He makes it clear that, that doctrine and life are, are, uh, are quite indivisible. What Paul teaches at every point has an application uh, to the Christian life. And his pastoral heart is found in this as well, that he doesn't just refer to those to whom he is writing. In, in other words, he, he doesn't just say you, your, and yours. Instead, he says, we, our, and ours. Like all good preachers yet today, he he seems to be writing as much to himself as to anyone else. Perhaps we see this most most clearly in the last chapter in in Romans 7. gives us a little opportunity for review. But the context is helpful as we continue on. In Romans 7, Paul starts out by referring to you. you. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. But notice, as I gave the emphasis there, notice the transition already in that statement. You have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Pay attention to pronouns, uh, not just for the sake of grammar, but for the sake of the comfort that Paul affords us. And, and then Paul proceeds to teach in terms of we, Uh, In verse 7, what then shall we say? Even more, he proceeds to teach in terms of I. That is, out of his own experience as as a believer in Christ, which he knows is the experience of every believer. And this allows us then to keep company, to keep company with the great Apostle Paul. Yes, as a, as a positive model for us to follow. But to our comfort, he is our fellow sinner. He is a man who is caught up in the same Christian life, the same struggle that you have, the same struggle that I have, the same battle that we, along with all Christians, are fighting. Are you fighting? Fighting against sin? 
fighting against the world, fighting against the flesh. Here's a specific point of application right at the beginning. Because uh, what do we do when we are feeling defeated? What, what do we do when we are feeling defeated in the Christian life? We, I, I think we tend to stay away from church. Maybe I have it easier because I have to be here every Sunday, right? <laughs> so so if, I'm, if I'm feeling defeated, what choice do I have? I have to come and preach the victory of Christ. But I am preaching as much to myself as to you. And you, when you are feeling defeated, why, why, why stay away from church? Why not come and hear? Come and hear Moses saying, if you treat me this way, God, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Why not come and hear David say, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Why not come and hear Isaiah say, woe is me, for I am unclean. And why not come hear Paul himself say, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? So, so that's an introduction to, to Paul's teaching, because now Paul is going to spend at least a few minutes on, on prayer. Is not prayer an area of the, of the Christian life by which we feel weak? If things are going well in your prayer life right now, well, good. <laughs> I'm glad for that. But for others and for all of us at various times in our life, uh, the effort to pray as we ought can be difficult and it can be discouraging. The secret, of course, is, is just to keep starting. Uh, never quit starting in the effort to pray. Uh, it, it's the corollary to never quit quitting. Uh, that's what they say about overcoming addiction or overcoming besetting sins in your life. Never quit quick, quitting. But in a similar way, when it comes to prayer, never quit starting. When you come to failure in your, in your new prayer campaign, never quit starting. When you come to failure, go by grace. Remember that for the sake of Christ, God is your Father. He is listening. Imagine that. What, do we not take that for granted? God is listening to the prayers of His people. And so even when you fail to show up for some number of days because you've gotten distracted, you've been, you've been uh, brought back to the starting point, you can always come back to your Father and know that He is listening and He is ready to hear you for the sake of Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8.26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
What's, what sweet words. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. True to form, for our great comfort, Paul leads us, prompts us, uh, just to acknowledge our weakness. And notice that the thing that allows us to acknowledge our weakness is to know of God's help by the Spirit. It's the same as, uh, as with the confession of sin. What sinner is going to come and stand before a holy God, acknowledging Him as holy, when God is a God full of judgment for sin, unless he or she is sure that God is also the God of mercy and forgiveness. It's the law of God that teaches us our sin, but it's the gospel of God that brings us to admit and confess what the law teaches us. Criminals don't generally walk into the police station and turn themselves in because they don't want to give up their freedom. They don't want to be punished for their, for their crimes. And, and so it is with sinners. It takes the law to convict the sinner at heart, but it takes the gospel to bring us to turn ourselves in. And we can turn ourselves in, which is to say we, we can confess our sins to God exactly because we know His gospel promise that if we say we have no sin, we make Him out to be a liar. But if we, if, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and, and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's Romans, or I'm sorry, that's... 1 John 1, if you recognize it. That's 1 John 1 and a little bit of part 2, or a little bit of chapter 2. But, but in Romans 8, we see something of the same pattern as Paul writes of our weakness. Again, he, he, he doesn't just say your weakness. Oh, you weak-willed believers in Rome. Jesus, our Lord, spoke that way. He said... Uh, he said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? But Paul wasn't Jesus. Paul was a sinner like us, so he wrote, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Our weakness. We all have this weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for. And here we have a, a striking clarification, I think, to the, to the teaching that's found in the book of James, that, uh, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think James is, uh, is often misunderstood as, as saying that prayer itself has some great power that we can wield to get God to see it our way, and to do things according to our plans. Well, granted, God hears the prayers of His people. Granted, God answers the prayers of His people. Granted, God has all power 
to do all things on behalf of his people according to his will. But Paul took a different tact. Paul spoke not of our power in prayer, but of our weakness in prayer. You ever thought about that? And perhaps this will be a bit more liberating for us, because who of us has not prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed some more, only to go without and still remain without to this day, without the blessing that we asked with godly desire. Sometimes you just don't know what to pray. I don't think Paul was referring to some weakness of faith, because it takes faith to pray and to keep on praying, and and we are clearly called to do so. So Paul would seem to be referring to the weakness of knowledge in not knowing what we ought to pray for. He even writes, for we do not know what to pray for as we, as we ought. And his meaning seems to be this, that even as we pray, with specific requests, yet what do we know? <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? That you might have it all figured out in your mind. But what is your mind compared to the mind of God? You've got your plans and your way forward. And, and, uh, and yet, do you really know what you're praying for is what you really need? There is a sense in which the best prayer that we can pray is simply to say, Father, your will be done. Now, that doesn't mean that that we can't form plans and and have godly desires and and seek the way forward that, that seems best to us. But do we really know that what we're praying for is what we really need? And is it not the matter of a, a right humility, certainly to pray, certainly to pray specifically for what we think is best, and yet to acknowledge that God's will is always best? Paul is going to write just verses later, he, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. I think a great illustration for this is, uh, is the story of Israel leaving Egypt. Uh, recorded in Exodus chapter 14. It's, it's not so much a story about prayer, but about the will of God being set for the good of his people. Uh, the ten plagues had, had finally convinced Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. They, they had marched out, even being encouraged by the Egyptians to go. Please just go. We've had enough of you. Actually, they had had enough of Israel's God and, uh, and his judgments upon them. But soon Pharaoh repented of his repentance. You know the story. 
he repented of his repentance once again and decided to go after Israel. And Exodus 14, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. All the versions say the same thing. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. The point was this. Turn back. Go set up camp basically in the worst strategic Location possible. Well, what was God doing? He was setting up the great miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. Moses didn't know that yet. The people of Israel didn't know that yet. But it was the instruction of God. Moses would be berated by the people for, for such a blunder in their eyes. The people would cry out in dismay and despair, What in the world are you doing, Moses? But he was just following the instruction of God. And yet God would deliver his people while at the same time destroying Pharaoh and his army completely. Again, it's not a passage that specifically mentions prayer. But it is a supreme example of God working His will amid the protest of His people. And do we not do the same thing? We know what we want and we know when we want it, which is right now. We pray and we ask for things we need, which is right and good. It's what we're supposed to do. But how is it that we think we know that what we ask for is what we need? How is it that we have it figured out better than God? I think what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8 is this exact thing. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What weakness? Well, we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the next point needs to be this, the, the Spirit's full ministry. And it's, it's not spelled out for us by Paul. He only mentions the Spirit of God yet again in Romans 8. But here's another place where, where we might tend to ignore what God's Word teaches about the Holy Spirit. And instead, just figure that the Spirit does this one thing. The Spirit is disconnected from everything else that God's Word teaches about the Spirit. So the Spirit intercedes with groanings that are too deep for words. That sounds rather spiritual. That sounds, that sounds rather, rather, rather nice. There is a degree of comfort in knowing that the Spirit intercedes with growings too deep for words. But, but what does that mean? We can easily print that one out and you know, put it on the refrigerator. But what does it mean? And, we, and, 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 and should we decide what it means disconnected from everything else that 
is taught us about the Spirit, even within Romans chapter 8. Not to look very far for the context. What is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? It's right here for us in Romans chapter 8. What have we heard already about the Spirit in verse 2? The, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In verse 4, we have those who have been given to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In verse 5, we live according to the Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. In verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In verse 15, we have the Spirit of adoption. And so on, which is why Paul writes in verse 26, Likewise, He's tying what he's going to say next about the Spirit to everything he's already said about the Holy Spirit. Likewise, here's the further benefit of being granted the ministry of the Spirit. By the Spirit we are not condemned. By the Spirit we live by faith. By the Spirit we are turned from sin and sent forward to live for Christ. By the Spirit we are adopted as children of God, crying, Abba, Father, Did you just decide that God is your Father? No. You were brought into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. And likewise, we have this benefit. Likewise, we have this benefit. This blessing, this assurance that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There is an ongoing debate among scholars. We just need to be honest about this. Uh, Commentators differ from each other regarding who is doing the groaning in Romans 8, verse 26. I think it's generally thought by most readers that it's the Spirit who is groaning. That's not necessarily wrong. The text and the grammar allow for that reading. It's... um, might even argue that it, the text in the grammar supports that understanding that the Spirit of God is groaning. But if that's the case, then it's, it's literally the only place in Scripture where we hear of God groaning. Although we do see Christ as God, in a sense, groaning in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But how much did Jesus, as God, groan as God, and how much as the incarnation of God, how much, in other words, as man? So so why is the Spirit groaning in Romans 8? Just not something we hear much about in Scripture. The Spirit is groaning, and it's a good question, I think. So I think that, that the, the prepositional phrase, sorry to throw the grammar at you, but, but what does the, preposi- the prepositional phrase modify? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, does with groaning too deep for words, does it modify the Spirit or does it modify us? Are we those who have groanings too deep for words, in other words? Does the Spirit groan with groanings too deep for words, or is it we who have groanings 
too deep for words. So the Spirit then intercedes for us. I, I think it's the latter. Because the text has already said, we do not know what we are to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us who have groanings too deep for words. As believers in Christ, we are, are we not given to groan? We groan every day. All too often, we don't even know what to pray for. But more important to see and, and understand is that, is that what we are given to pray, it might not even be what we really need. So that the best prayer that you can offer is simply, God Be merciful to me for the sake of Christ. Father in heaven, thank you for Christ and for my salvation in him. I have no idea what you have in store for me between now and eternity. But thank you for my salvation in Christ. And may your will be done. And so finally, the Spirit's intercession. But what is finally the Spirit's intercession? Is it it simply the Spirit groaning without words, just as we groan without words? No, the Spirit's intercession is everything that the Spirit is and that the Spirit does. The Spirit is the new birth in us. The Spirit is the gift of faith in us. The the Spirit is the confession of sin within us. The Spirit is the gift of faith, and and the Spirit is taking up your cross daily and following Christ. That's the Spirit's intercession in your life. You're doing that not by your own will and power, but by the Holy Spirit that Christ himself has, has poured into you. In the end, the Spirit is the power of God causing us to groan. We groan because the Spirit is within us. We groan under the weight of this world. We groan, and so we know by our groaning that the Spirit of God is in us. Unbelievers don't groan, at least not by way of this particular groaning. Verse 27 gives us, to understand this further, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So can we see it? I mean, if we bring in everything that Paul has already taught about the Spirit and all that God's Word teaches us about the Spirit, what is the intercession of, this, the, the intercession of the Spirit? It, it, it is our faith itself. And here is the, the great comfort of the Christian. Are, are you a Christian? Then here is your comfort, that the struggle of the Christian life is the evidence of the Christian life. The fight of faith is the proof of your faith. If you groan on your way to heaven, then be glad, because if you were not groaning on your way to heaven, 
you would be smiling on your way to hell. The Spirit is the life of God breathed into the believer. The Spirit is the work of Christ applied to the believer that we might be believers. And the struggle of the Christian life is so inherent to the Christian life that the struggle itself should give us comfort. Isn't that amazing? The struggle of the Christian life is so inherent to the Christian life that the struggle itself should give us comfort. The struggle, the the groaning of the Christian life is our comfort because it is the work of the Spirit that causes us to groan and to long for that great day, which Paul has already referenced at the end of chapter 7, that great day when we will, we will be delivered from this body of death through the resurrection that has been promised us and that is even now ours by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let us pray in the Spirit, which doesn't mean we need to get into some altered state of reality. It just means we need to pray knowing, remembering that it's only by the Spirit that we are trusting in Christ and it's only by the Spirit that we have the desire to pray even as we groan under the weight of this world. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are so sovereign in your grace that you save us through the pouring out of your Spirit through Jesus Christ. And so it is faith itself that is the evidence of your Spirit at work within us, and it is our groaning which can give us comfort to know indeed that your Spirit is interceding for us each and every day. We live by Christ, and we live by the Spirit poured out and breathed into each of us. May we have this assurance. And may we pray according to this assurance. And even now we ask and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.